Lock your doors. Close the blinds. Change your passwords. This is the Dry Cleaner Cast. Welcome to the Dry Cleaner Cast, a podcast that takes a new look at the war on terror, its legacy, and espionage in the 21st century. This podcast is written, edited, and presented by Chris Carr. Not a lot of people know much about Nazi cells or about Nazi agents of influence in Britain during World War II. With the 80th anniversary of World War II just upon us, I thought it might be a good idea to have a look at this. So I'm joined by author and journalist Tim Tate, and we take a look at his book, Hitler's British Traitors, and we dive into some of the skullduggery that went on behind the scenes during World War II. So if you enjoyed this episode, please consider becoming a Patreon subscriber. Go to patreon.com forward slash drycleanercast, and on there, there is a link for you to subscribe. In the months ahead, I'm going to be looking at specialist content to reward you wonderful patrons out there. So keep an eye out for that. Some more news. My film, The Dry Cleaner, is finished, and it will be coming on to iTunes and other digital platforms very soon. I'll be doing a special podcast interview about the film, uh, so the table's going to turn and I'm going to be the guest this time and uh, that will be coming out in the weeks ahead so just keep an eye out on your app for new episodes um, the podcast itself is going to continue on the uh, on a monthly basis with a new episode coming out the first Friday of every month and um, as and when current events kind of uh, heat up we will do a special need to know episode need to know might potentially be moving to a patreon model uh, where patreon subscribers get that first i'm just sorting that out at the moment so i will give you some updates about patreon rewards soon if you like this episode please give us a five star review on your preferred podcast platform don't forget you can follow us on twitter by going to twitter.com forward slash at dry give us a little hello and i will say hello back so thank you very much for listening. It's uh, exciting times. We're in the fourth season of the Dry Cleaner Cast. We've been running for three years. So thank you so much for listening and all your support over those three years. And I'm looking forward to producing new content for you in the year ahead. Uh, we're going to be taking a look at a lot of uh, espionage stories. We'll probably look a bit more at some of the ideology that underlines modern extremism and terrorism today. And we'll be taking a look at some hot spots, both present ones and future ones and potential ones too. So hopefully there's some very interesting content coming up over the months ahead, or should I say the year ahead. And on top of that, there will be updates about my film, The Dry Cleaner, which I'm very excited about finally releasing. Uh, it just means we can now unleash my film onto the big bad world. And hopefully the more people who watch it, the more likely my television-inspired follow-up will be made, which is called The Great Game. You heard it here first, The Great Game. So uh, I'll tell you more about that in the weeks ahead. So thank you very much for listening. Please give us a five-star review on your preferred podcast app. It helps us find more listeners. Please recommend this podcast to your friends, family, cohorts, colleagues, lovers, ex-lovers, friends, enemies, whoever. Please just recommend this podcast as many people as you can. That would be wonderful. So thank you so much for your support. And I will and I hope you enjoy this episode and I'll catch you on the other side. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye bye. 
Opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the filmmakers and sponsors of the film, The Dry Cleaner. Hi, Tim. Welcome to The Dry Cleaner cast. Thank you very much for having me. For the benefit of listeners who are not familiar with your work, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm an investigative journalist, a documentary filmmaker and an author. I've produced and directed documentaries for all British television channels, terrestrial channels, as well as a number of international networks. I've written for most national newspapers and I've published 16 non-fiction books. Amazing. So you're a very busy man then. <laughs> well, it keeps me out of mischief. <laughs> well, we're going to chat a bit about your your book um, today, uh, which is Hitler's Hitler's British Traitors. Um, and what's interesting about this, uh, many intelligence historians have sort of downplayed the idea of Nazi spies and a Nazi fifth column operating in England during World War II. And they sort of say it's the stuff of myths and hysteria. Can you just talk to us a little bit about how you came to challenge this idea and write a book on Nazi spies and the Nazi fifth column operating in the UK during the war? Yeah, a couple of years ago, I spotted a small news story about a handful of MI5 files being released, declassified and released to the National Archives. And the files concerned a truly extraordinary undercover and agent provocateur operation against British pro-Nazi fascists. And that was mounted by the security service during World War II. And I thought, well, that looks like an interesting subject for a possible book. As it turned out, those files were only the tip of an enormous iceberg. Uh, The more I researched uh, and looked at the files, the more files I found. Mostly they're declassified MI5 dossiers, uh, and they're on what can only be called traitors. British men and women who spied, carried out sabotage, and communicated with or worked on behalf of Nazi Germany. And as you say, this this was something of a surprise because the official narrative of the Second World War is one of a country united against a common enemy. You know, we we take now as part of our national heritage things like the spirit of Dunkirk or the spirit of the Blitz. You keep calm and carry on. That's the dominant continuing story we've told ourselves ever since the war. And that's not a false narrative. It just isn't the whole story, because after more than two years' research, including a full year of working on literally scores of these one secret secret files, seven days a week, it was clear that there had been a small but significant and dangerous population of British men and women who wanted Germany to win and did their best to bring this about. Yeah, it's quite amazing. And what was it? What was it like to be sort of challenging this accepted wisdom? Because um, there's quite a few historians who are who are kind of against this idea. Yeah, it's never a comfortable place to be, is it? That you you're trying to challenge a dominant narrative. And in fairness to the historians who have, as you say, largely suggested that the fifth column, the so-called fifth column, was a myth, they were writing academic historians by and large, they were writing before the release of the files to the National Archives. And those files are really, really clear. They show, for example, that there were 70, 70 criminal prosecutions, trials usually held in secret of British citizens for espionage, for sabotage and for communicating with the enemy. Four people were sentenced to death Two were actually executed and the rest received lengthy prison sentences. 
And um, and why were these files sort of classified for so long? That's that's a fascinating question, and one to which I don't have an answer. The process by which files are declassified and released is, to say the least, obscure. Theoretically, under existing legislation, they should have been released decades ago, these files. They weren't. They tend to get turned over to the National Archives in a, in a fashion which is, frankly, haphazard and utterly incomprehensible. And I guess it must have been made quite difficult for you to keep track of everything. So were you – how do you – I mean, I've, I've never actually um, been to the National Archives to research something like this. So I'm, I'm intrigued about how one kind of pursues these, th- these things and where you find out what, what you need. Well, happily, the National Archives does have an online indexing and database, and you can check what file is available and what file is where, whether it's been digitized, for example, because some files are digitized have been digitized and are available for download, which is for a researcher and a journalist, frankly, very, very much easier. Other files are physical paper files and you have to consult them at the National Archives. And there was a good old mix in this. And you know, in the end, we're talking about several hundred files, each with many volumes, and each volume could run to a hundred, hundred and fifty, two hundred pages. Now, you know, that's an awful lot of paper, and it was, and they are, chaotically disorganized, these files. So it's an enormous undertaking to actually analyze them, cross-reference them, and try and find the information you need. And, um, sorry, forgive me, you may have said this before, how long, how long did it take you literally to put this little book together and do all this research? From start to finish, more than two years, but there was one, a full year, and, you know, that's a full seven-day-a-week year working on the files and it's simply a question of starting in the morning working through the files remembering where there's a reference to somebody uh, somebody who sounds similar or or is the same in a different file and cross-referencing and going back and forward i mean it is a, a fairly substantial piece of work yeah, wow. I bet you went for a lot of coffee doing that. <laughs> a lot of coffee and quite a few cigarettes. <laughs> oh dear. So in the it'd be good to chat about the sort of the pre-war years. So German intelligence were tasked with recruiting assets from the UK. Can you give us an overview of what is sort of known about German intelligence at this sort of pre-war time? I mean, if we go back to the early 1920s, which is when the Abwehr, which was the German military intelligence service, began, it was pretty much an unfavoured department within the National Army, the first German National Army since world, since its defeat in the First World War. And it was an unfavoured department because the upper echelons, if you like, of the German National Army viewed espionage as a faintly dishonourable recalling. And for the first few years, it was staffed by only three regular army officers who and a few who had been brought out of retirement. However, by the end of the 20s, it has grown substantially, and it had three separate divisions, one of which began seeking out potential agents in both the United States and in Britain. And what do we know about the intelligence officers who sort of came to Britain? What were their histories and sort of how did they operate? One of the things I think we have to have to understand it's important to understand is that german intelligence in the 30s and particularly from the moment where hitler takes power 
changes. It's not just a professional cast of spies, though there were several hundred of those, but in keeping with the Nazi ideology, all organizations and individuals were expected to work on behalf of the Nazi state. And so you had, in addition to more than 200 Abwehr officers, undercover agents who traveled from Germany throughout Europe, Holland, Belgium, and in particular England, in addition to them, you had they were expected to recruit sub-agents within their given territories and commercial cultural figures within Germany who traveled abroad were also expected, required, to act as spies within the countries where they were sent. I remember the, in your book you mentioned, um, was it Siemens, the organization, but ended up having to um, become a sort of front, in a sense, for German intelligence. Yeah, Siemens is was, is a vast multinational combine, but it, certainly in that period, it, its headquarters and its central unifying body was in Germany. And British intelligence knew from the early days that Siemens globally was part of German intelligence. And there are a number of declassified files about Act, the activities of Siemens senior management in the countries across the world where it's operating, showing that they were acting as agents of German intelligence. And that certainly was the case in Britain. Yeah, so there's a potential then for an awful lot of uh, espionage then against Britain. Yeah, sure, particularly because Siemens then had military contracts with the British government. So it, its senior managers were in a very good position to provide for Berlin the sort of military intelligence which was going to be vital in the coming war. And so so with this picture, how seriously were the British government really taking the rise of Nazism in, in Germany in these pre-war years? Yeah, the British government failed to recognise the threat that the, a Nazi Germany posed until far, far too late. And that Failure to recognize was one of the reasons why British military capability had continued to be degraded throughout the 1920s and early 1930s. And so by the time really the British government woke up to the threat, the existential threat posed by Germany to Britain, we were the British Army, Navy, and Air Force was significantly behind behind the eight ball if you want the same is true of intelligence mi5 had mi5 had a very good first world first world war but then saw its budget and its staffing eroded and cut slashed really in the years the in, in the interwar years so by the mid 1930s when some parts of MI5 begin to wake up and say, hold on, there is going to be a potential problem here. They have far too few officers to monitor German spies coming into the UK, let alone British Nazi sympathisers and the enormous number of British fascists. 
why why were the why were the government or why were politicians so sort of behind the curve on this? Do you think? I think Britain was. You, you have to remember that these were this, these were years of change. Britain's role in the world was changing, and it's just that Whitehall, to use a collective term, was very slow to see that the old order, the old dominance of the British Empire, was no longer what what it was the tectonic plates of world power were changing britain was slow we had we had something called the 10 year rule which was introduced in 1919 and that held that britain would not be involved in a major military conflict for a full decade and that period kept getting extended now if enough attention had been paid to what the Nazis were saying and were planning, they would have realized, because it was what you and I would call open source, that part of the Nazi ideology was of the total state, total war. It wasn't, war was not going to be conducted by the old gentlemanly rules anymore. This was a whole whole different ball game in which all German citizens were expected to turn their efforts to the support and benefit of the state, and that included espionage, sabotage, and the rest. Yeah, so a great threat. Well, let's have a. Can we have a quick look at some of the professional intelligence officers who, of the ABVA who came to the UK? Um, one of them's Rudolf Rosal, who was posing as a journalist. Is that right? Can you tell us a little bit about him? Sure. Rudolf Rosal was was a journalist, and he he's a classic example in that sense of what. Uh, what Nazis, the Nazi regime wanted to do. You, as a journalist for a German newspaper, you were sent to the UK, you were expected to act as an agent of the German state. He was ostensibly the London diplomatic correspondent of the SNN National Zeitung, that was a newspaper owned and controlled by Hermann Goering. He arrived in Britain in the early 1930s he, and took up his role as that correspondent. But that was really just a cover for his true role as one of the leading Nazi party officials in England. And according to MI5 files, his job, his real job given to him by his masters in Berlin, was to set up a fifth column of British pro-Nazi sympathisers. So he organised Nazi party members in Britain, and he sent back reports to Berlin on both sympathisers and opponents of the Nazi regime in Britain, reports which were placed on the desk of the Führer himself. Sorry, the term fifth column, I forgot to mention it before. What does it mean and where does that term sort of stem from? The phrase first entered the lexicon, if you like, in during the Spanish Civil War, when Madrid, which was then a Republican city, was being besieged by Franco's fascist nationalist forces. And a couple of Franco's generals, including Franco himself, talked about the four military columns they had outside the city and a fifth column, a fifth column of saboteurs, spies, working undercover within Madrid itself. And that's where the phrase comes from. So let's look at um, another another advert agent. So Paul, I hope I get his surname right, Brockhart. Borchardt. 
poor chart. Yeah. It's my, my lack of German for you. Um, now, he, he posed, he's an interesting one because he posed as a Jewish refugee and then he tries to become an asset for MI5 and MI6. So what's known about him? Borchardt is, is an interesting case and it's one, one of the many cases which has never really been written about before, even though his file is there and available. He is an agent of the Abwehr. He poses as a refugee, a Jewish refugee, who fled to Britain from Nazi persecution. This, one of the reasons this is important is that there were an enormous number of genuine refugees from Nazi persecution who arrived in Britain in the interwar years. And they were viewed with a great deal of suspicion by politicians and the press who thought they posed a threat. They, they were... So the so the theory went they were potential fifth columnists. The vast, vast, vast majority weren't. They were they were genuine refugees. But a few, a very, very few, were spies, were adverse spies, and Paul Borchard was one of them. He arrives in the UK, he then volunteers his services to MI6 and MI5 try and vet him and say he looks promising, but probably he's a bit too German to be taken on. And they advise that he isn't taken on. And he isn't. Had they really looked, they would have seen he had a long career as a German intelligence officer previously. But they didn't do enough checking. As a result, Borchard is allowed to live for a few months in Britain before emigrating to the States. And in the United States, he ran a Nazi spy ring, which was busted in late 1941. And indeed, he was arrested and convicted and sentenced to 20 years jail in December 1941 for being a Nazi spy in the, U in the US. And we had let him go. So not good for US-UK relations. Then. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> and um, there's another agent, Herman Herman Simon. Uh, what can you tell us about him? Herman Simon, again, a fascinating case because he is one of those salaried Abwehr agents who is able to move in and out of Britain in the late 1930s with remarkable ease. And MI5 was particularly slow to pick him up. He travelled across south, southern England particularly. He visited aerodromes. He visited military bases. He made sketches of defences and, of, and details of personnel at them. This is all vital military intelligence. And he smuggled that out to his masters in, in the Abwehr. Why he's particularly relevant in this story is that he was able to collect a series of British sub-agents, British men and women who were willing to assist him with spying and also who acted as paymasters, conduits for German funds sent to them as ostensibly unremarkable people, which they then passed on to Borchard to keep him going in his trips across Britain, his spying trips across Britain. 
there is a there is an element of farce in some of in some of these stories, and there was in Borchard's case. You would think that when he got caught, he might have got caught for spying. He actually got caught for failing to fill in the register on a, on a hotel he stayed at. And when when the police caught him for that and arrested him for that, they discovered absolutely unequivocally spying equipment and espionage material. And normally, you would hope that would have been enough for a, a prosecution for espionage. It wasn't. He got charged and convicted for the particularly minor offence of failing to register, got a couple of months, and then got expelled. Are there any ideas of why they didn't charge him for espionage? Was it a morale thing? No, I mean, it's a a slightly complicated answer, but part of the reason is that there was a huge disconnect between the police, local police forces, and MI5. Bear in mind, MI5 didn't really have enough staff to do this job. Um, And that's part of the reason. The second reason is that we didn't actually have a law under which Borchard could really have been prosecuted. We'd managed to let the Treachery Act, the First World War Treachery Act, lapse, and we hadn't replaced it. And although a couple of Whitehall committees had languidly considered what should happen in the event of war and should we have another one, nothing had been done. And we didn't, in fact, have a new Treachery Act until late spring of 1940. So there wasn't a law under which really he could have been prosecuted. Wow, that's quite a big problem. <laughs> it was a substantial problem. And one of the revealing files is the diary of a quite remarkable MI5 officer called um, Guy Little, who um, kept this journal, this daily journal throughout the war. And he was a very senior MI5 officer, and it records his utter disbelief at the incompetence of the Home Office in particular, and its inability to grasp the problems. And one of the things you can hear him putting his head in his hands in this journal is saying, we don't, we still don't have a law which would deal with foreign spying. Yeah, quite a, I bet that must have caused a hell of a lot of frustration, definitely. I know I would be if I was uh, in that job, that'd be, uh, yeah, quite a pain. Are there any other notable ABVAR agents um, that are worth sort of mentioning before we move on? Yeah, one of the names which kept cropping up, and this is, as we talked earlier, it's a question of you'll see this name in one file and then think, I've seen that in another file, and you have to go back and find it. And the name which kept cropping up was an ABVAR handler, spy handler, you'd call him, Dr. Nicholas Nicholas Ritter. He was also known as Dr. Ransau and Dr. Reinhardt. He had a number of aliases. And his name crops up in a succession of the cases which were detected in the years leading up to the war and indeed afterwards. He is essentially the spy master based in Hamburg who is recruiting British traitors to work on behalf of the Abwehr and paying them and receiving their intelligence. And his name crops up again and again and again throughout these files. Like what we're doing? Connect with us on Twitter at DryCleanerCast. 
Support the show by becoming a Dry Cleaner Cast Patreon subscriber today. Go to patreon.com slash drycleanercast. That's patreon.com slash drycleanercast. In 1939, there was growing evidence of senior uh, senior British aristocrats and military officers had become kind of converted to the Nazi cause. Some of these people were so confident in their Nazi support that they actually attended Hitler's 50th birthday celebrations in April 1939. Apparently, it was a hot ticket. Um, can you talk to us about who attended Hitler's birthday celebrations and why it was, well, why it obviously was a cause for concern? As you say, this was the big hot ticket in Europe in April 1939. The celebrations were lavish and unquestionably militaristic. I mean, the the leaders of the Nazi regime set out to create a military parade which would show Germany's military strength. And it did. It was a massive, massive show of strength. The British government didn't send any deliberately shunned it we said we're not going to send anyone because of what hitler had done um and the failure of munich and the invasion of other countries but three representatives if you want to put it that way of the leading pillars of the british state did turn up there was a quasi official representative of the royal family now he the duke of buccleo who was the royal steward and closely related by marriage to the king. He turned up by personal invitation and stood alongside Hitler. He was reprimanded for doing so. Buckingham Palace gave him a thorough dressing down, but it didn't stop him carrying on for the next six months after the war started, lobbying on behalf of Germany and demanding that the government give in to Hitler. And finally, he was eventually sacked by the king and sent off to internal exile at his uh, comfortable estates in Scotland. Next to him, I think one of the the most important figures is is a, a military figure called General John Boney Fuller. He was the father of mechanized warfare in Britain. He had revolutionized it and was a very, very, very senior figure in the British military establishment. He had also helped Germany, Nazi Germany, reorganize its mechanized military. He is another person personally invited by the Fuhrer to stand with him on the podium to watch as all of this vast German mechanized machinery of warfare passes down the Unterdell Linden. Fuller was, despite his very senior position in, in the British military, was an unrepentant Nazi, was an unrepentant pro-Nazi fascist. And once again, his name crops up throughout the files, not just as somebody who attended Hitler's birthday celebration, but involved in a series of utterly treasonous plots to launch a fascist coup d'etat in Britain just as soon as Hitler's troops land on English shores. That's quite a terrifying thought, really. The war could have gone a very different way had they been successful. I mean, one of the things 
which stopped me in my tracks when I found it was the existence of these three coup plots. No, these have, have never been talked about before. These have never been discussed or written about. And yet there they are in black and white in these declassified MI5 and government files. And they, they unequivocally show that three organisations led by remarkably well-connected figures in the British establishment plotted violent coup d'etats. We're talking about armed fascists on the streets, in their own words, who were to replace the British government with a puppet regime, a Nazi puppet regime loyal to Berlin, just as soon as German troops arrived. So this event, um, I'm assuming, I can, I hope, <laughs> MI6 had some people potentially watching this event, or there must have been someone somewhere watching it. Did it ring any, did this event and the people who attended it ring any alarm bells back home? Absolutely. I mean, the alarm bells were ringing, it's, it's MI5, not MI6, because MI6 is the overseas service. The alarm bells were ringing loud and clear within MI5, and it scurried round from the beginning of the war somewhat haphazardly recruiting extra staff and busily trying to infiltrate the British fascist movement. And it did that with some success. So in the files, in these now viewable files, there are reports of a large number of MI5 undercover officers who have penetrated the fascist, British fascist groups and who are giving reports back to MI5 of verbatim conversations with the leaders of these groups about what they're planning. And how, how popular was Nazism in Britain in the pre-war years? Alarmingly popular is the, is the honest answer. Fascism was something which took root in Britain in the 1930s. Other Historians have, I think, aptly described the 1930s in Britain as a dark valley. We had the aftermath of the Depression, mass unemployment, gross inequality of wealth, and fascism took root. And the traditional view of fascism taking root is that it took root in the working, the working class, the disenfranchised, disaffected working class. And that is undoubtedly true. It did. But it also took root in the middle class and particularly in what you would, I suppose, call the aristocracy or upper classes of the time. So that sympathy for Germany, for Hitler's Germany and for what Hitler and his Nazi regime was doing was pretty widespread across all the strata of British social classes. And it was explicit. Hitler was, quotes, a great man, end quotes, according to several of these people. And beyond that, I think what really enabled it to, to grow and flourish was anti-Semitism, because anti-Semitism was endemic. Casual anti-Semitism was endemic in Britain in the 1930s. Beyond the casual, you can f see and read, not just in these files, but in newspaper, contemporary newspaper reports, that really, really vicious anti-Semitism, which argued that 
there was an international conspiracy of Jews who were causing problems throughout the world and controlling the world. Utter nonsense. But this was believed and indeed was was proselytized. And beyond that, it was actually preached in churches in England and Scotland. So anti-Semitism, I think, was the was the loam which nourished fascism and pro-Nazi fascism in particular. Yeah, that's quite a disturbing picture. And there were quite a few groups, weren't there? There's the, um, I'm just going to throw a few groups out there and we could talk about them. So you've got the BUF, the, is it the British Union of Fascists, the Link um, and the Right Club. And obviously Oswald Mosley is a kind of um, leading star of Britain's fascist movement. What Could you talk to us a little bit about these groups and a little bit about Oswald Mosley? Mosley and his British Union of Fascists, also known as the British Union, it changed its name a couple of times, was, I suppose, British fascists' premium brand. That was the most recognisable name, if you like. And, you know, at its peak, it had tens of thousands of members. It, as many right-wing, ultra-right-wing organisations have a tendency to do, had schisms and splits and violent disagreements within it. And it began to lose support particularly after the violence of the East End riots in the mid-1930s. More worryingly, behind the public face, if you like, of fascism, the BUF, there were these smaller and much, much more dangerous groups. Some of them were outright Nazi organisations, the Nordic League, for example, the Imperial Fascist League. These were unquestionably unashamed pro-Nazi fascist groups, which in many cases pledged their loyalty to Berlin. As well as them, there were groups which purported to be in favour of an advancing Anglo-German relations, Anglo-German friendship. And that's where this, this group, the link that you mentioned, comes in. Mm. It's set up in the late 1930s as a group which is going to prom- promote friendship between Germany and Britain. And it's organised and founded by a man called Admiral Sir Barry Domville, who had been Director of Naval Intelligence British Director of Naval Intelligence, and was therefore a very senior, well-connected figure. Although it purported to be an anodyne and friendly and perfectly sensible group, in reality, it was a fully owned and paid up branch of Joseph Goebbels' propaganda ministry. All the material it supplied, and it supplied this material to its 4,000, nearly 5,000 members throughout the country and the Conservative Party and members of Parliament. All that material was provided by the German propaganda ministry. It unfailingly promoted the line that Germany and Nazi Germany was the saviour of Europe and if only Britain would get out of Hitler's way, everything would be fine. Is that where um, A.P. Laurie's book the case for germany is that sort of what that book argues well ap Laurie was a council member of the link he was also an there aren't adjectives really to describe as he was a vile anti-semite he was um a slavish admirer of hitler and the case for germany is a pian 
to Hitler and to German Nazism. He writes the book. Not surprisingly, he can't find a British publisher. He then receives an offer from the German propaganda ministry who say, we'll publish this and we'll pay you a fee, several hundred pounds for the, as an advance. And Domville writes a foreword for this book. And bear in mind, this is months, just months before war breaks out, in which he praises Hitler and says what a great job he's doing and what a wonderful positive biography this is by Laurie. It's it's an extraordinary book and it's Domville's preface to it is just inexplicable except to say Domville believed in German fascism and wanted that to happen here. And did did any of them, do we know of any of them expressing any kind of regret or changing their mind after the atrocities of the war? Or did these people pretty much just stay on, on this mindset? I think I found one person in these scores and scores of files. One of the, one of the, one of the people, bear in mind we're talking about 70 prosecutions and hundreds and hundreds of internments. One expressed regret the rest carried on, and even uh, at the end of the war, when Hitler had committed suicide, when the death camps um, at Auschwitz and the rest had been exposed, they continued to, they mourned his loss and said that it was essentially, in modern terms, they described it as fake news and propaganda. Yeah. And is this where the sort of um, the roots of modern neo Nazism? probably come from are they or? to a degree i mean what's one of the sort of smaller things that interested me was what was happening in the dying days of the war mi5 had was then running this extraordinary entrapment scheme which i know we'll come to and which is where i started on the research and it said we must keep this going because we don't know whether international nazism international fascism will continue and they were they were determined that it was potentially a problem now we know with the benefit of 70 years hindsight that as a global threatening force fascism largely died in the ruins of the third reich and thankfully so however individual fascist groups continued and they were born from the pyre of these various Nazi, pro-Nazi British fascist groups. And they continued, albeit in tiny form, and have never gone away. And I think it's no great revelation that far-right activity is now resurfacing all across Europe and in Britain as well. And one last sort of question about the Safari in Britain during the war. Did they, was there ever a figure kind of put on how many people were members of all these, all these fascist groups? Was there like a number that could kind of tell us how many sort of, should we say, quote unquote, fascists there were in Britain at that time? There's, there is no reliable figure for that. And there's, there are figures for individual organisations. So for the, for example, the Link or the Nordic League probably had at their peaks between four and 5,000 members each. But some of those are likely to be the same people fascists were remarkably promiscuous 
in their membership of these groups during the war. So you'll see in the files people who were members of two or three different organizations at the same time. So no, there's no reliable figure. What we do know is that at the very least, it's several thousand. And within that, we know that several hundred were actively working on behalf of Germany. Yeah, too many. Well, you know, one is too many because one can do a great deal of damage. But when you have several hundred of these people, it's very hard, I think, to argue that this fifth column, if that's what you want to call it, is a myth. Before we move into British intelligence, so there is one character who, and I hope I get his surname right, Anthony Ludovici. He was an MI6 officer. Ludovici was, in the interwar years, one of the great thinkers of the Conservative Party and the Conservative movement. He was a writer, an intellectual And he was an unashamed fascist. He was one of those who traveled to Germany to visit the leaders of the Nazi regime and was granted interviews with Hitler and his deputies and wrote fulsome accounts of how wonderful it was and how the German people were united and loved their Fuhrer. I mean, these are, you read these these reports, these documents that, and he published these and it's, it, you know, it, it makes you slightly nauseous. Despite this, when war breaks out, Ludovici is to be found inside MI6. Now that's to me extraordinary. You have a diehard pro-Nazi British fascist working for the secret intelligence service at a time when Britain is at war with Nazi Germany. Logically, it makes no sense. He was, he continued in that role until um, until the middle of 1940, and even when he was finally fired by MI6, and he was fired because of his pro-Nazi fascism, he is then taken on as by the Air Ministry, and he crops up in files on convicted British traitors saying, yes, we're talking to him, he's inside the air ministry, he's helping us evade the censorship. It's extraordinary that someone like this was allowed to continue. Yeah, and did did you ever find a reason why he was allowed to? No, and here is another part of the, the problem. You would think, wouldn't you, that there would be NMI5 file on Anthony Ludovici. And indeed there was. And we know what his reference number was because it's mentioned and referred to within other files. You will look in vain for that file in the National Archives. For a lot of the most senior and well-connected British fascists, most well-connected British traitors, the files we know existed because we have their reference numbers have never been released. Yeah. <laughs> One can only speculate as to why. But uh, yeah, I mean, he sounds like he's, in a way, he, you could compare him to somebody like Kim Philby in some respects, couldn't you? Possibly. I mean, it's except that Ludovici didn't hide his opinions. Ludovici was an out Nazi, if you will. He, he There was no secret about Anthony Ludovici's beliefs and his admiration for Nazi Germany, he had published this. Quite how he remained in place is 
something which may or may not be revealed if his file is ever released. So another another interesting character is um, Levorn Henry, uh, and there was an advance of coup plot. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about that? Again, this is this is a story which has never ever been told before, and yet it's there in black and white in the files. Levorn Henry was a celebrated musician, composer, conductor. He was a familiar figure, in a sense. In pre-war years, he had. He, re- he appeared regularly on the BBC wireless um, talking about his specialist subject of Bardic, Celtic Bardic tradition and Welsh music, and he conducted concerts for the royal family. So he was a, he was a well-known figure. He was also a diehard anti-Semite, a, an unrepentant pro-Nazi fascist, and according to the evidence collected by MI5, and it It had several officers monitoring him and his organization. He set up and organized a fascist coup d'etat. His organization, according to the reports of MI5 undercover officers inside it, ran to 18 separate cells, each with 25 members. It was planning to take to the streets as soon as German troops landed. It was planning and willing to use violence. It had set up safe houses for its operatives and an escape route out of the country in case things went wrong. It had a printing press. Vaughan Henry had acquired a series of fake passports or genuine passports with which he could turn into fakes by doctoring the pages And he was negotiating, at the very least, to buy £250,000 worth of Lee Enfield 303 rifles and ammunitions. Now, £250,000 at 1940s prices is several million today. Yeah. Now, these, these plans were absolutely detailed and really well advanced. And by May 1940, MI5 had officers inside his organization reporting back, reporting on his plans to infiltrate other political parties and indeed to bump off, his words, inconvenient people. By any standard, Lee Vaughan Henry and his organization was an outright treacherous, dangerous organization. And at that point, you think, well, what happened to him? What happened to him was that he was interned. He was arrested in May 1940 under wartime regulations, which allowed the Home Secretary to order the internment of people who were a threat to the national to national security. And he spent the rest of the war behind bars and behind the barbed wire of internment camps, which is obviously a good thing. One of the things that puzzles me, other than the fact that no one else has talked about this, is that the material, the original material for, which describes Lee Vaughan Henry's activities should be available in his own MI5 file. We know the reference number of that. We know it ran to at least three volumes. And yet that file isn't anywhere to be found in the National Archives. Instead, 
the details of the his plot and the MI5 officers' reports are actually found, and this is where I found them, in the files on other fascists and in an utterly obscure Treasury solicitor's file relating to his complaints, Vaughan Henry's complaints about being interned. And yet here are these detailed plans, detailed arrangements for a fascist coup in the spring of 1940, which was, to coin a phrase, Britain's darkest hour when we were expecting German invasion at any moment. Are there any... Are there any um notable characters from British intelligence that have cropped up in your research? Yeah, there are a number. And once again, their names crop up regularly throughout the cases. We've talked about Guy Little, who was the deputy director and then director of B Branch. B Branch was the, the main branch of MI5 tasked with counterespionage, essentially assessing, detecting and neutralising Nazi agents and British fascists in Britain. Little was an extraordinary and remarkably effective intelligence officer and indeed carried on for many years afterwards. His diary, and I would recommend anyone to read his daily diary, which was declassified in 2002, is probably the closest to a, a key or an index to the fifth column cases as anyone can come it's it's a it's a fascinating and incredibly useful document in fact it was so sensitive within mi5 that until 2002 it was locked in the safe of the director general and not allowed to see the light of day so little is an important character and he runs through these cases like a to use the old phrase like letters through a stick of rock beyond him the the main character who has received most of recent attention is Maxwell Knight, who ran a branch, a sub-branch of B branch, and was an agent runner. He ran some of many of the early undercover officers inside British fascist groups. There are a couple of biographies of Maxwell Knight, the latest of which came out, I think, a year or so ago. And they tend to talk about him and portray him, in their words, as Britain's greatest spy master and as the the model for M in the James Bond novels and series. There's really very little evidence to support either of those contentions. M was, in fact, of course, MI6, whereas Maxwell Knight, who was sometimes known as M, was MI5. Also, what the files show, the declassified files show, is that he was utterly disorganised, chaotically so in some cases, and although he was genuinely inventive and some of the work which he created, presided over or instituted was vital, in other cases, his his lack of attention to detail and his refusal to understand basic procedures contributed to what became an absolutely bitter and debilitating war between MI5 and its masters in the Home Office and the rest of Whitehall. And that war would affect 
what happened to British fascists and how they were controlled throughout the war. So, Tim, thank you so much for joining me today. I think listeners are going to have to get a copy of your book, Hitler's British Traitors, to sort of delve into the full intelligence picture. Um, it truly is fascinating, and I, and I really, really have enjoyed our sort of chat today. And it, it, this is such a such a kind of mind-blowing book in many respects, because it just challenges so many, as you were saying, some of the kind of images that we think of of the war and how united Britain was, or as we find out how it wasn't, and also those sort of internal battles between the police and the intelligence services. And before we do wrap up, um, where can listeners sort of find out more about you and your work? At my website, which is www.timtate.co.uk. And just in case it matters, I think it should matter. I think this should matter to your listeners. The book reports and details the contents of the files, and it reproduces many of them themselves. But it also shows anyone where they can go and find this material you know because these are these are major allegations these are disturbing allegations and they challenge as you say the conventional narrative so please don't take my word for it read the book yes but don't take my word for it every allegation is sourced and you can see where i found it and you can go and find the documents yourself and those documents are unequivocal. Excellent. Well, Tim, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much indeed for having me. Like what we're doing? Support the show by becoming a Dry Cleaner Cast Patreon subscriber today. Go to patreon.com slash drycleanercast. For more information about the podcast, visit our website at drycleanercast.co.uk. Thanks for listening.